complete the sentence. I can't live without plants. If you ask Google, they will say, I can't live without you. Which is true. They can't live without the money they make out of advertisements every time I click on their site. But in all honesty, what can't you live without? I think many might say family, my wife, my children, money, my savings account, purpose, a job. And yet, all these things are significant important, but none of them are of ultimate importance. This is an important question because it addresses issues of value. What does my heart ascribe worth to? We can answer this question wrongly in so many ways with our words, but also with the inclinations of our hearts. But our text for today actually helps us have clarity on what we can't live without. We are working our way through the book of the prophet Habakkuk. So if you would open up your Bibles to Habakkuk 2, we're going today to look at Habakkuk 2, verses 2, And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own and collects as his own all peoples. So what can't we live without? What, what is the right answer to this question? What is essential for our lives? Well, Habakkuk tells us, right, there, there are many ways we could answer this question. But Habakkuk tells us we can't live without faith. Faith is essential for life. Now, the word faith is often misunderstood in our culture, isn't it? Many associate the word faith with a pointless religiosity that will never have any relevance for their lives. Faith that perhaps 
leads to bowing before statues and idols. Perfunctory rituals or even speaking the infamous language we all know so well called Christianese. Others will think of faith as merely confidence. Believe in yourself. If you just have enough faith, you can do anything. This wrong concept has popularized the terrible exegesis of Philippians 4.13 by athletes all over the world. This misconception has also given my generation our high school anthem, I believe I can fly. And yet, no one truly believes that. What faith is Habakkuk speaking of? Habakkuk is speaking of faith in God. Habakkuk is speaking of faith in God's promises. A faith that affects the way we run this race called life. A faith that causes us to be humble before a mighty God who orchestrates our destiny. A mighty God who is more concerned with our holiness than with our comforts. So here's the main thought that is going to guide us through this message today. Enduring faith in the promises of God reveals the genuineness of our Christianity. Enduring faith in the promises of God reveals the genuineness of our Christianity. How do we see this in the text? Well, first of all, we see a call for a persevering faith in verses 2 and 3. Last week, we were left on a cliffhanger, weren't we? God promised to judge his people, and he was going to judge his people by bringing a more wicked people to attack them. Habakkuk brings his complaint to the Lord. How can your just be served by the hands of wicked men? And Habakkuk places himself on the watch post where he basically tells God, I will wait here until you respond to my challenge. Today we read in verse 2 unexpected words. Does God do well with challenging questions? Does God respond well when we wrestle with him in faith? Does God respond well when we complain not about him, but to him? And the answer is, yes, he does. How do we know that? Because the first words in verse 2 is, And the Lord answered me. God in his mercy, God in his kindness, hears 
the complaining hearts of the prophets. And he answers the prophets. Have you ever thought about this? God displays his grace in the simple fact that he speaks to us. God does not owe it to us that we should hear from him. He could have created us and left us. He could have left us to our own devices and sins. He could have left us thinking that we are all right. And if he did that, we would all walk merrily and blindly to hell. There is no salvation if God does not speak. There is no salvation that does not first come from the mouth of the Lord. The mere fact that God speaks to us is an indication that He is a gracious, merciful, kind God. Friends, we worship a God who speaks. A God who speaks truthfully, a God who speaks clearly, a God who speaks to us in our time of need. And here is where we meet Habakkuk, in a time of need. And what does God say? Well, let's continue in verse 2. He tells Habakkuk, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. A clear allusion to the Ten Commandments here, right? Where God's laws were written plainly on tablets of stones. You know, when God speaks, He only needs to speak once. God is not an external processor when He speaks and thinks about what He spoke afterwards. He knows the vision and he communicates it to us clearly, precisely. Israel is running a race, a race of faith. And God, in his mercy, tells the prophet to make a sign big enough so all who run may see it. God is never unclear about his thoughts. God is never unclear about his communication. Do you know when I finish preparing my sermon that I deliver on Sunday mornings? I don't. Because after Sunday comes Monday, and Monday is famously Pastor uh, Monday Blues Day, where you go back and you think about everything that you said that you should have said differently. When you think about every statement that you've made that you could have made more clearly. When you think about every opportunity that you had that your lack of clarity hindered you from seizing. God is not like that. God is not like your pastor. God is so much greater. And this is why when I speak to you, my goal is to rely on his word. My goal is to rely on what God has already said. Because if you were to rely on my ability alone to be clear, you would be utterly confused. But when God's word is proclaimed and God's word is made clear, 
you hear from God. And God has said, take my vision and proclaim it clearly. Proclaim it so that all who may run, so all who will run may see it. I don't know if you've ever driven up and down I-95. If you're like me, you probably kind of avoid that like the plague. But if you have, once you get to exit 176, you see a sign by the exit, don't you? It says Palm Bay, so that you may not be confused about where you are. You're not in Melbourne, you're in Palm Bay, right? That sign is clear. Everyone who drives, whatever speed they're going, whether they're going north or south, they can see it. That is how God speaks. Now, we could discuss about the beauty of the sign or the aesthetics of the sign. I don't know what that communicates. It communicates location. I don't know if it communicates a lot more. But it communicates clearly. So whether you're going 40 miles an hour or 80 miles an hour, you know where you are. Friends, this is how God communicates with us. He proclaims his word. He proclaims his vision clearly. God has a purpose. God has a vision for his people And God instills faith in the believer when his gospel is proclaimed with clarity. This is why at Central Baptist, our service is shaped and saturated by the word of God. This is why our first criteria for song selection is not how hip or cool the songs are, but how theologically sound they are. This is why when we baptize someone at our church, as we did this morning, We first hear their testimony so we can see the clarity of the gospel in the individual's experience with God. This is why we seek to preach the word very carefully. Our goal is not entertainment. Our goal is to proclaim the Christian faith with clarity and precision. Why? Because the proclamation of the gospel is what causes saints to persevere in the faith. Here's what Paul tells the Corinthians. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, salvation, right, in the past, in which you stand. Our current condition is still standing on the gospel. And look at the movements and by which you are being saved. There is an ongoing necessity for believers to hear the proclamation of the gospel. So when I preach to you and I seek to make the gospel clear, I am not only speaking to the unbeliever. I am speaking to all of us, including myself. The gospel is not there It's not the mere entry door to Christianity. It is the door we enter through. It is also the path we walk on day in and day out. It is what saves us. It is what sustains us. It is what sanctifies us. And it is ultimately what will bring us to God. Author Jerry Bridges would say, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Did you hear Kevin tell Ethan that very 
quotes, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Why? Because we are prone to forget the gospel. We're prone to wonder. We're not naturally prone to persevere. Did you notice the illustration God uses for the life of faith here? Write the vision so he who runs may read it. Language running is often used in the Bible to describe the believer's progress in the faith. The author of Hebrews says, run with endurance the race that is set before us. Running the spiritual race is hard work. We need constant encouragement. Now, maybe some of you really enjoy running as a hobby. Maybe some of you enjoy just getting out there and chasing the wind, okay? Uh, with me, unless someone or something is chasing me, I choose not to run, right? But about two years ago, I ran a 5K, and that was a huge accomplishment. And I remember in that 5K, they spread out through the 5K, I think every kilometer, there was a water station. And, and the water station, there were people encouraging us, keep running, here's some water so you can recharge. And, and that's what the gospel does for those who are running the race of faith. It is that reminder, Christ died for you. Will you live for him? Will you continue in your faith? Friends, we only persevere in our faith because God perseveres in his promises. Look at verse 3. God says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. This is a strange race. It's a race. The one who wins is the one who waits. Waiting on the Lord can also be very hard work. Sometimes we can feel tempted to doubt that God will be true to his promises. Sometimes we can feel tempted to doubt that God is even there. This was certainly a temptation for Habakkuk and also for faithful Israel. But not only does God display his grace in the facts that he speaks to us, God displays his grace in the fact that he encourages us in the midst of our waiting. There is an appointed time for the vision to take place. You see that in verse 3? God says, it's, if it seems slow. God is never late. Our perception of God is that he may be late. But throughout history, we see the people of God waiting. And sometimes even questioning, God, are you there? But God's track record of being there is perfect. Even when his delivery takes place inside a furnace, 
even when his delivery is not to keep the lions from you, but to shut the mouth of the lions so that you may not be hurt by them. Even when his delivery looks like taking on the cross and dying on it. So that resurrection would be possible. Friends, God encourages us to persevere in faith, but God also rewards us in faith. We're going to see that in verse 4. We just consider the need we have for perseverance. But why? Here's why. Because faith has a reward. And the reward of faith is eternal life. Faith is worth it. It produces something. It produces life and life eternal. In in verse 4, Habakkuk is reminded of the pride of the Chaldeans. Their soul is not upright. But the righteous, in contrast, will live by faith. Faith is the fuel that empowers righteous living. It is impossible to live a life that is righteous before God and not believe God. In other words, there's no salvation outside of Christ. Think about the circumstances Israel was in. A mighty, powerful, wicked nation was about to seize them. They were violent, ruthless, proud. They did not fear God. God, where are you? Israel is asking. Did you not promise us peace, rest, victory? A prosperous land. Did you not promise to deliver us from our enemies? You brought us out of Egypt in an incredible way. But now we are about to go back into a reverse exodus. God, where are you? Israel cries out. And God would say to Israel, If you are righteous, you will believe me, not just when it's easy. If you're righteous, you believe me, not just in times of prosperity, not just when everyone around calls you blessed, but when nothing around you seems to be right. Times of trial, we find the faith. Of the righteous one. God's promise of delivery to Israel never came without the warning that disobedience would bring about the reproach of the Lord. As a matter of fact, even before Israel entered the promised land, the Lord told them that they would love their sin more than their God and they would be scattered among the nations. Babylon was not a surprise for God and should have never been a surprise for Israel. Deuteronomy 28.5 The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them 
and you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. God knew Israel wouldn't obey. He knew they would be a stiff-necked people. But he expected his people to always walk by faith. Unwavering faith. And this is good news, friends. Because just like Israel, you and I are stiff-necked. You and I are proud. We believe we're self-sufficient. And for this reason, God should cast us out of his presence. We should be a horror and a shame before all the inhabitants of the earth. For righteousness does not depend on what we do, good or bad. Righteousness depends on faith. Now, this begs the question, doesn't it? What is righteousness and what is faith? What is righteousness? Righteousness is to be right with God. When God looks at the righteous person, he sees no sin. Instead, he sees perfect obedience. Righteousness is a state of Perfect morality. Are you righteous? Righteousness is necessary. Only the righteous will be saved. If you are not perfectly righteous, you will not enter heaven. Heaven is not a place for those who are pretty good. Hell is. Heaven is not a place for those who get it right most of the time. Hell is. Heaven is a perfect place. And if any imperfection enters heaven, heaven will no longer be heaven. Friends, God's demand of righteousness is a problem for us. We don't meet it. We don't live up to it. Romans 10, quoting Psalm 14, Romans 3, quoting Psalm 14, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This describes you, and this describes me. And friends, if you don't see it, it is because pride has hijacked your heart. God calls you to humble yourself before him. If you see it, if you know you're not morally in a right stand with God, you must be asking the question, so What is the solution? What is the solution for my unrighteousness? How can I be made right with God? 
Well, let me answer my second question. What is faith? Faith is to actively believe the promises of God. The God who communicates with his people also makes promises to his people. He promises to deliver Israel from all his enemies. Psalm 34, 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Psalm 50, verse 15. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. So God is saying, Israel, you are about to go into exile. A wicked nation is about to destroy your land. You will lose your freedom, your possessions, your wealth, your comforts. But do not stop trusting me. This is the faith that imparts righteousness. Not believing in God for health, wealth, and prosperity, but believing in God in spite of lacking all these things. Trusting God when our lives are shattered. Trusting God when we are broken. Trusting God when everything around us seems to be telling us there is no point. This is foolishness. I am wasting my life. Friends, this is the kind of faith that leads to righteousness. This is the kind of faith that enables one to walk in righteousness. I don't know if you get a sense for how radical the statement I am making is. I am saying that if you believe in God, that if you believe in His promises, that if you hear His words and say, that is true, you are righteous before God. You stand in perfectly in perfect morality before the one true God. Righteousness is not achieved by religious works, charity, professionalism. You are not righteous because you are a good parent, because you are responsible, or because you feed the poor. Righteousness only comes to you by faith and faith in the promises of God. And friends, there is no greater promise God has made to all his people than the salvation he offers in Jesus Christ. You see, when Paul says that no one is righteous, no, not one Paul is actually excluding the man Christ Jesus. He was righteous in every way. He obeyed the law perfectly as he came to fulfill it. He was born without sin, unlike all of us. Every word of the Father he kept perfectly. The man Christ Jesus, a man of flesh and bones, just like you and I, 
willingly and joyfully took on a cross and died a criminal's death, bearing on his shoulders the sin of all who would believe in him. He didn't deserve to die. The sins that pinned him to the cross, that held him there, were not his sins. The only time when a righteous man died was when Jesus died on the cross. This Jesus would resurrect with power. And he would call his disciples. And he would tell them, proclaim this good news. Yes, it is true that righteousness is impossible. And every man is born hell-bound. But because the sinless Savior died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And now righteousness is not achieved by a perfect obedience, but by faith in the one who obeyed perfectly. This is the message of faith that imparts righteousness. The righteousness is given to us because the object of our faith is Christ. So God does look at us and see a people who is holy, not because we're sinless, but because Christ is. Not because we are perfect, but because Christ is. Friends, it takes a very humble heart to believe in this. So my question to you is, are you righteous? Have you humbled yourself before the mighty hand of God? Have you confessed your sin? Have you confessed every way in which you have transgressed the Lord's law? Have you rested in the sacrifice of Christ for your hope of eternal life? Friends, This vision is here today. This is not a time of waiting anymore. You are called to faith now. You are called to believe the gospel today. This brief statement in verse 4 would eventually become so central in all of Scripture that you would be quoted in the New Testament three times. This small, somewhat obscure, minor prophet called Habakkuk gives us with a statement that would help the New Covenant believers understand the power of the gospel in salvation. Paul in Romans 1, 16 and 17 is presenting the thesis of his book. And he says... For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
For Paul, righteousness is a gift, a gift from God, not a gift to the, res- to the deserving, but a gift to the one who believes. Fifteen centuries later, Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk who attempted with all his might to be justified by the works of the flesh, would read these simple words after having read them thousands of times and would experience a radical conversion. No longer did he fear God because of his unrighteousness, but he experienced the grace of God in the imputed righteousness he received from Christ. Here is what Martin Luther would eventually say of his conversion. But up until then, it was a single word in chapter 1 of Romans. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed that had stood in my way. For I hated that word, righteousness of God, which according to the use and custom of all the teachers, I had been taught to understand as that by which God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the word, namely, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written. He who through faith is righteous shall live. There, I begun to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous live by gift of God, namely by faith. Martin Luther had finally understood that God's righteousness to the believer was a gift. It was a gift that was undeserved, not earned. The righteousness that God would give to the believer was the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, friends, if we are in Christ, we need not fear. If we are in Christ, we know that God is for us. And will never be against us. Finally, in verse 5, we'll consider the warning of faith. We just heard incredible news of the grace and of the righteousness of God. But God's grace is a grace that warns us about the perils surrounding our faith. Verse 5 is a reminder, reminder that to Israel that although salvation is for those who live by faith, the enemy out there is real. In verse 5, Israel is reminded that Babylon is still out there. The proclamation of hope has gone out. Live by faith. But know that Babylon is a mighty enemy. The righteousness they would receive by faith 
that we have received by faith is not a good reason for them and for us to put down our guards. Babylon here is described in poetic language as drunk with wine. One who is mighty, but is not in control of his actions. Israel is not to trust Babylon or her gods as Israel moves into their midst because she is a traitor. Babylon will do anything for her own gain. Her greed is like Sheol, the land of the dead, never satisfied. The next two weeks, we'll talk about God's response to Babylon. But for now, it is important for us to be reminded that one of the greatest dangers we face is to presume that since we have received the grace of God, we have finished the race. The proclamation of the gospel is to impart endurance. Once truly saved, always saved. And the truly saved will persevere in their salvation. May our Christian life feel like a marathon. And may we run well the race that is set before us. Friends, our enemy, Satan, desires to devour us. But as we go, let us hear the word of the Lord that he gives to the church. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for his finished work rendered on the cross. Thank you for his burial and resurrection. Which, Lord, is the, right, uh, is the righteousness that every believer receives. We pray, Lord, that you would impart in us faith, and hope. May we run with perseverance this race that is set before us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus, my Redeemer, there is no one or heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom. This I know, my hope is only Jesus. Oh, my love.